okay? So I pray that you'd help us, Lord, um, to, to see the, this good news according to Matthew and to be able to, to live that out in such power and, 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 and truth in our lives every day that we, we become that, that city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We become that light of the world that uh, exposes everything which is in darkness but also draws people and gives direction and that we are the salt that, that uh, produces a thirst in the, in the nations and the people that we are among and brings great flavor into the world. Lord, really, we, we don't want to just uh, talk about it um, as if you're not in the room, but we want to be those who are, like the disciples, followers of Jesus, lay, laying down our lives daily, loving and delighting in your word, loving and delighting in your spirit, and hungering and thirsting for you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, yeah, at the time of Herod the Tetrarch, um, he heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is Matthew 14, right? Herod the Tetrarch, he heard um, about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist that has risen from the dead and that is why miraculous power are at work in him. So this is the first time in the gospel that we actually, if you've never read the gospel before, this would be the first time that you hear that John the Baptist is dead. You'd be like, what? John's dead? Uh, no, because we know it, because we know it, we know the story so well. We just read over it as if it is as if you know it's not a thing. But then Matthew stops there for a minute and feels the need to explain what happened because he's he's telling a story, right? Remember, this is not just the transfer of information. Matthew's weaving the tapestry like we saw there. He's telling the story about what's happened, and he goes on to do that. Now, this Herod was not the same Herod of of the early Matthews that heard about Jesus and then wanted the Magi to return to him to somehow sniff Jesus out because of the new king of the Jews who was on his way and he was super intimidated and threatened by it and he went and killed all the babies under the age of, what was it? Two or three. Am I talking too fast? Yeah. No, that's not the same Herod. This is that Herod's son. And he's, uh, he's probably more evil than the previous Herod. Uh, but here is Herod the Tetrarch, and he was reigning over the Decapolis in a massive area. If you look in the back of your Bible, the maps from, um, from Tyre and, and Sidon in the north uh, to Beersheba in the bottom, he was ruling over that thing as, a, as, 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 the Roman, as the Roman authority. And he is the one who was at a party one night, and he had an affair with his brother who was, was co-ruling next to him in the northern province, the northwest provinces, and he, uh, he had a crush on his brother's wife, Philip. And um, uh, Philip was his brother's name, I think. Well, let's just read it. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him up and put him in prison because Herodias, yes, his brother, Philip's wife, yes. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him as a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much. Now, the daughter of Herodias was his cousin, right? He's, he's, his brother's wife's child, but now is his daughter and is dancing at a royal feast. And you can let your mind kind of wander into that area a little bit. If you read the, 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 the scholars, they say that it was a highly provocative uh, dance, like a... Like a like a belly dance, you know, like a what? He, what these? Anyway, don't go too far. But he pleased the crowd. He pleased the crowd so much. So it's this weird, and nothing's changed. I mean, nothing's changed. It's sex scandals and politics, you know, and, and nothing's changed in this world to this very day. And in the midst of all that, 
in a, in, a, in a drunken moment of absolute stupidity, he made a promise to this girl who pleased him, who used to be his nephew, niece or whatever, and now his daughter. And John spoke out about it because he was just John. He came proclaiming a baptism of repentance, which meant think differently, guys. The kingdom is here. And not everybody could think differently quick enough for John and was very offended by his message, as they were with Jesus, but I think more so with, with John, because he was, he was bringing in this new era of the kingdom of God, is here. I'm going to draw a picture for you if I can remember everything later. But John, then Herodias, uh, Herod said to, um, so Herodias asked the daughter to go to say to Herod said to her, whatever you want, you can have, I'll give you. And Herodias, the lady whom Herod had an affair with, I think Herod and Herodias is a title, maybe. But anyway, she was the female version of the Herod. She was Herodias. And she said to the daughter, ask him for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And I don't know why she did that. And nobody knows why. I try to find anybody who knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And uh, anyway, the next minute, in came the servant with the head of John the Baptizer, the cousin of Jesus on a platter. And uh, I remember the first time as a child, hearing this, and my Sunday school teacher was this guy, he was like in his 70s, and he was an incredible guy. I remember him to this day, just spoke very slowly, but had the ability to draw you in. And I remember gasping, oh, no, because I thought John was going to be like a main character. And that, that was it, in a moment of drunken stupor. And so in verse 11, his head was brought into the, in a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother, and John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. Verse 13. So when Jesus heard what had happened, John, my cousin, has been beheaded. He withdrew by boat to a private solitary place. And Peter probably said, Lord, I know a place on the other side of the lake. It's private. There's no people there. Let's just get away from it. But Jesus said, I've got to get away. He's, he's, he's wanting to create a space to process. He's grieving. He's obviously super sad. If you think of how he reacted at Lazarus' grave, he sobbed because his friend Lazarus was dead. And then he thought, wow, let me just raise him from the dead. Uh, not so with John. John's head was off, and he was dead, and Jesus was grieving, so he said, let's go to the other side of the lake. And so hearing of this, the crowd followed him on foot from the town. And this is just so beautiful to me about Jesus. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. I mean, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. And it's already getting late. So send the crowd away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. Now just in, as a matter of context, this was, uh, this was a Jewish crowd. They were mostly Jews, uh, according to the scholars. And um, they had followed, they'd heard Jesus was withdrawing to the other side of the lake. So they ran around the lake. And, they, and some who had boats, I, I guess, took the tr track with him across the water. They got to the other side, and when Jesus arrived, they were really waiting there for him. And it was a vast crowd, and we know there was 5,000 men, which means there were about 5,000 women and uh, maybe, maybe 5,000 children, I'm, I'm guessing. So it was a crowd, a big crowd of people. Jesus saw them, and he healed all their sick, just like that. And so the evening drew close, drew close and the disciples wanted them to go away. Maybe because they were also still processing. Maybe because they were overwhelmed. And maybe because they were trying to cover for Jesus and protect him from the demands of people all the time. And so they said, Jesus, tell them to go away. Tell them to go to the villages and buy food. It's, it's getting late. We don't know what to do. So Jesus said this. 
They don't need to go away. Staggering. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus replied. He says, Lord, tell them to go to the villages to buy some food. Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. So I don't know what happened in that little interim there. I would have loved to see their responses and their reactions. Julia has these uh, little kids that she babysits on Saturday. And yesterday she took them to the spider exhibition in Burlington. And Lucas is just like, they are absolutely the cutest kids I, I've, other than, you know, Chantel's kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sky and jo- Jackson. But uh, anyway, uh, Sophia would knock on the glass all the time, see the tarantulas jump and stuff like that. And Julia said, don't do that. Stop doing that. And um, she just was randomly videoing them, looking at the spiders, and Sophia knocked on the glass, and the tarantula jumped on the glass. And she captured this moment of these two children getting a fright. It's, it's my favorite thing to watch people get frights. It's a terrible thing, but <laughs> it's my favorite thing to watch the expression and how they both jump back. Lucas is just like, he, can, he can't even talk yet, but the, the fright. And the, stop for a minute and just think, of the faces of the disciples when Jesus says, no, they don't have to go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> Funny, we're just talking about children. It's amazing. So just imagining the faces of these people. Bring, so, he's, so he says, they say, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And he said, and he directed the people to, he, he, so, so he directed the people to sit down in groups of about 50, the scholars say, but they sat down. So taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up at heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves and then he gave them to the disciples. So what happened here is that Matthew jumps forward to bring the story back to this point. Because what, what do you see when he took the loaves and he broke the loaves? Where does that take you? His body was broken. Where was that really a big deal? The Last Supper. So Matthew was writing the story and he's thinking, okay, wow, this is exactly what happened at the Last Supper. He took his body and he broke his body and he was able to do that, to multiply it metaphorically, not just in the moment but through our lives. And the the beautiful thing about that, and I'm sure you've heard this feeding of the 5,000 preached in many, many different ways, but this is just my, my little thing. Jesus says they don't have to go away. Okay, so the need was imminent. The need was real, very real. It was there. And Jesus said to them, uh, and they said to Jesus, Jesus, you tell them. Jesus, you're the guy. You take the authority. You tell them. And all the while, they're now at a stage of the story where Jesus is wanting them. Remember, it was Jesus doing everything and they watched. Then it was Jesus doing and they doing. Then now they're at a time where Jesus wants them to do and Jesus watches. But they are still going back to Jesus for everything. And if you've read Matthew 1 to 14, you can see the beautiful unfolding that. If you read it in one go, it's one hour to to read slowly to chapter 14. And so there, at that particular point, Jesus was saying, they don't have to go. You give them something to eat and they face with the impossible. And he says, what do you have? He says, five loaves, two fish. So he says, bring what you have to me. And this was the order and this is how I see it. The first step and our, and our stepping into the reality, which we call the supernatural, but it's just a kingdom reality, is to bring what we have to Jesus. 
But before we can bring what we have to Jesus, please stay with me, it needs to slap us in the face that what is happening in front of our eyes is actually impossible. We can't feed 5,000 men, 5,000 women, and maybe 5,000 children, so maybe 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We know it. It's real. It's, it's fine. We know it. And if I can stretch it a bit, all of us in this room go through times and seasons of our lives where we have to face that which is impossible. And then Jesus says, what do you have? Bring that to me. And this was the order. Impossible? What do you have? Bring that to me. Jesus took the bread. They brought what they had to him. He broke the bread, gave it back to them, and then they took it to the people. And every time they came back after handing out the chunks of bread and fish, they came back to Jesus. What, what happened at Jesus? In Jesus' hands, there was more. They didn't do the multiplying of that reality. They just brought what they had to Jesus. He did it. And every time they'd given all they had, where did they go? They didn't go and look for more bread in a boat or try and catch some fish. No, they went back to Jesus. And, and, and I think that's the premise of our life. And that's why we never have to live hidden and isolated through times of hardship. Because this community is really what that represents. Phil goes through stuff. Frank goes through stuff. We all go through stuff. So where do we bring it back to? The community of the saints. We are in this together. We are the disciples. It's good. It's healthy to place yourself in that impossible situation. Who is our only enabler? Jesus. Who is our utter dependence? Jesus. Who's the one who commanded us to do the impossible? Jesus. And so the things we often want to dismiss and spend so much energy trying to avoid are the very opportunities for us to continue to run back to Jesus. And if we live lives that are never dependent on Jesus and we squeaky clean and perfect, I doubt if we ever actually have become disciples. We might love the ideology of Christianity, but we've never really laid our lives down because we've never realized, I'm living the impossible. And that's the premise from the beginning to the end of Scripture. And so Jesus brings them, bring them here to me, and then he gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the people, verse 20, and they all ate and they were all full, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And some scholars say this is significant there to Israel, but I didn't have time to read into that. But they started with five loaves and two fishes, and there were 12 baskets left over after everyone was stuffed. Okay, it's a miracle. It happened one way. They took what they had to Jesus. He multiplied it. They went back to Jesus after handing out what they have. If we stop handing out what we have, we literally become the Dead Sea. If there's no outflow, if there's no outworking of a missional component to our lives, we intentionally, we live our lives knowing that we have something to give in an impossible world to others. Or we give what we have, but it's always just what we have. We soon run out and run dry. But coming back to Jesus all the time. Honestly, and I, I, I hate to plug these things like this, but on a Monday night at 7, 7.30, there's a group of us here, men. It's a men's prayer meeting. And this is literally what it is to me. If I think of these times, it's just us coming back to Jesus. Saying, Lord, this is what we have. Would you take that and would you multiply that? And would you make this little five loaves and two fish into something that is completely supernatural so that what is left over afterwards is more than abundantly what we started with? Why? Because we constantly would go back to Jesus. So stop going to give what we don't have yet given to Jesus first. And so they were all filled. And so in verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and to go ahead of him to the other side while he, dis he dismissed the crowd. 
I don't know how he did that, but he did. So everybody had eaten, and I guess he said, bye guys, have a nice trip. After he dismissed them, he went up the mountainside by himself to pray. So now finally, after John was beheaded, he took a trip across the lake, met all the crowds, healed all their disease and sick people, fed all of them and their children. They were all full. They cleared up. They cleaned up 12 basketfuls. He said, disciples, go ahead. He dismissed the crowd, and now he has time alone by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, which is almost the next morning, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Very cool. And then Jesus saw him walking. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, John shouted. And they, no, John didn't shout that. I just made that up. They said and cried out in fear, so legit fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it, if it is you, a doubtful statement, Peter says, Peter says, tell, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret. And when the men of that, pl- of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. And people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. You know, my favorite line of this is that Peter never walked on the water. He walked on the word of Jesus that said, come. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I love the fact that when he began to sink, he cried out. And I do believe that in the, great, in the great story that God brings us through times and places where we are responding to his word in faith and our faith is challenged and we begin to sink. And then he gives us this cry. I hope it doesn't sound too abstract. Like with Israel, he gave them the cry. And when they cried, Lord, save me, then he saves them and he admonishes their faith at the same time. Because I tell you right now, everything can go from the coffee machine to our building. Everything can go. But if our faith goes, we're dead. Faith is the substance of the things that we are hoping for. The substance. And the evidence of things not yet seen. No matter how cool, anything effective purposeful, successful, anything that we think we put our hands to become. If we're not growing in our faith, we are those who have been, been Christians for 20 years, but one year Christians 20 times in a row. We want our faith to grow. And then it was significant for me as well that the wind never stopped while Peter was walking on the sea. And Jesus was standing there saying, come to me. The wind stopped when they stepped into the boat. And sometimes when Jesus calls us into the impossible... He's not going to change situations for us. And it's all coming back to his goodness. That he's trustworthy. He's totally trustworthy. It's not just a matter of, yes, I believe. It's a matter of, I absolutely trust. I absolutely trust you, Lord. I don't want the scenario to change necessarily. And sometimes I do. I admit to you, I do. Sometimes things are too difficult for me and I want things to change. And Jesus says, the wind will not stop until your faith assignment is complete. And we are both back in the boat. 
Peter got out the boat alone, came back into the boat with Jesus, and the wind died down. And then the natural response, which should be the reality of our lives, is not that we worship when the opportunity avails itself, like on a Sunday morning, but we've seen the undeniable greatness of Jesus in our lives, and our response, our natural response is to worship Him. Truly, you are the Son of God. Everybody cool? Chapter 15. This this gets really funky and I'm going to try my best, okay? There are not many guys that write in a way that is um, not slanted to a particular point that they want to make through Scripture. And I'm honestly, I'm just trying to read the story as it is and tell you what I think it means. So some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They do not wash their hands before they eat. The Pharisaical uh, leader, there was one leader, I forgot his name right now, he said that not washing your hands before you eat is as uh, um, having communion with a harlot. That was the, the rule. So this was a very staunch reality if you considered yourself a Pharisee. You'd never eat until you've washed your hands. And so these guys came here to try and trick Jesus. And Jesus replied, And why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, which is one of the ten commands. And it's a commandment with a promise. Uh, one of the few commandments is the promise. If you honor your mom and your dad, your life will be extended. Now for us who are grown up, we no longer obey our mom and dad, but obedience and honor are, are uh, interchangeable. What's the, what's the thing there? Uh, we honor. We don't have to obey anymore, you know, but we definitely honor still our folks. And so, uh, and God said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. This is the, the law of the Pharisees based on the Ten Commandments. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He's not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions, you hypocrites. As I was right when he prophesied about you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And the premise here for me in this scripture is that there was a tradition that you would uh, have a certain amount of money put aside for your parents when they get old that you would be able to sustain and provide for them. That was the honor of, in, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish model, in the Hebraic model, and obviously the Pharisees being a part of that, the Hebraic model, they were just the, 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 the scholars and the learned few, had hyper-emphasizes every one of these little rules and regula- regulations. But now some of them had taken this money and set aside to, to, to facilitate their travels around and to facilitate their lives. And so the, the money was somehow misplaced or misappropriated in other areas. And then when the, when the obligation put there by them to provide for their parents was upon them, and they realized they had the money to do that, they made a statement saying, oh, we did this to serve God. So all this money is lost because we are serving God. And so Jesus is calling them out on that reality by going back to the prophet Isaiah, which says that it, what you say with your mouth, if it's different from what you are in your heart, which is prefacing the very next chapter that we're going to look at right now, the very next thing, what we're going to look at right now, then you are a hypocrite. And Of all the people in the world that we see through all the good Gospels, Jesus never was harsher with anyone than with the hypocrites. Those who said one thing, but their hearts were defiled. 
and they would pinpoint the rules and the laws and they're hyper-focused on those kind of things, but in their heart they were unyielding. They were, they were not tender. They were, they were brutal. And so they would justify the, the failure of their own laws by the words that they speak, but their hearts were defiled. Does that make sense? It's pretty simple, right? And so Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of the mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were very offended when they heard this? And he replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by its roots. Now, pulling up by its roots just means that it has no potential to regrow. It can, it, it's destroyed. Leave them. They are blind guides, or they are guides of the blind. If a blind man leads a blind man, both of them will fall into a pit. And, so, so, and then Peter said, please explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still so stupid, Peter? Jesus asked them, don't you see that whenever, whatever enters the mouth goes directly into the stomach and goes out the body? But the things that come out of the mouth, come out of the mouth, so the one is in, the other one's out, come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. Now we know that the, the seat of hearing, the seat of hearing, the ability to, for us to hear the voice of God, to hear the voice of others as we hear the voice of God, is the heart. The enemy's attack is against the heart, because that's where the bruises of Satan has most effect. And so people's hearts that are hurt and broken, and they've not come to a place of wholeness and healing. And that's why we stopped a little bit sometimes to take a stock of what is really in our hearts, why we behave, why we react, why we expect the way that we do. It's based on how we were raised and how we were treated and the bruises of Satan in our lives. And unless we get the balm of God's grace in processing this properly, which is the main reason for community, this thing, and not to, to, to hyper-focus on ourselves only, we will always be dysfunctional in what comes out of our mouth because our hearts are broken. Our hearts are broken. Our ears are dull. And if you don't hear the voice of God, um, then uh, it's probably because you just haven't waited long enough and wanted to hear Him or because you're, you, you are hurt. You are hurt. And so that's why we need community because others will hear God for you for a season. And others will love and encourage and speak life to you when all you want to believe about yourself is death. Others will speak life. And so Jesus is saying, guys, the hyper-focusing on the washing of the hands will just either give you diarrhea or, or you'll be fine. So that's not what makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you which makes you unclean. It's very simple. Peter said, explain. And so don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes to the stomach? And verse 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Out of the heart. Because, uh, yeah, so um, one of the prophets says that the heart is deceptive above all things. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, which is lying, slander, gossip. And these are what make a man unclean. And so, and so God wants to heal the heart. And a part of coming to a place in your life where you, uh, because you're responding to the voice of God, determined to be a follower of Jesus, to lay down your life, um, you enter into a covenantal reality in the Spirit where Jesus circumcises your heart. Now, not circumcision done outwardly like God's people did through Israel, but by the Spirit. It's done by the Spirit, which means a cutting away of the old. That which has, has hurt and broken and defiled 
and is the, the root of these desires, like sexual immorality, gossip, slander, always seeing the negative attitude, God cuts away as you, as, you, as you follow. Don't you love the gospel? And these are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands doesn't make him unclean. And then leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon, so Jesus was down here around Jerusalem, a little bit south of Jerusalem at that particular time. So now he's withdrawing. Tom, where are you going? Come on. I know you told me. Blow that for the king. Blow that trumpet, Tom. Tom, we're so proud of you. Plays in the band. Yes. So Jesus leaves that place and he's heading for Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, yes. Tyre and Sidon are, are on the northwest of the coast of Israel, Jerusalem, and then you go up from the Dead Sea area past the sea of there, and then it's Tyre and Sidon's up there in the north, in the no- northwest. The beaches are unbelievable. Um, it's the Mediterranean. And in those days, it was the, the hub of the trade routes from India to Europe, Italy, and south to that area. The Decapolis, and so on, Pontus, and all those areas around there with many names. And this is where Jesus is now going to. Now, this was a Canaanite city. It was as gentle heathen as you can get. There were no Jews. This was a heathen city. Can you imagine the street food? It must have been amazing. And uh, just the hustle of the, of the coastal port. This beautiful food. There's amazing people. Now you've got to understand that Matthew 14 is now drawing to a place where Jesus is going to the cross. Okay, let me just draw this picture for you. I'm going to try my best here. So God started with the, uh, the nations, okay, as he's, as, he's, uh, as he's intention. The nations. All nations would know him. And, and, and you know, Adam... Eve, I'll tell you what I'm writing because it's difficult to see, I guess. Adam, Eve, and then um, Abraham. Abraham, he is, he, is, he is known as the father of the nations, right? The father of the nations. Can you guys see? I can't move it much more. But right from the beginning with the garden, the garden, the, the snake that deceives Eve and, and uh, the fall of man, the entering of the sinful nature into the, through the Adamic nature of man, which we still have today if we're not in Christ, um, things just started to, to go bad from the word go. And then there was Noah, who was like a clean slate, and I, I can't get into the deep theology about all these things, but then, uh, um, then there was King David, one of the greatest kings. So God's heart was always for the nations. So God, so God says what I will do, because he's so much about family, I will choose a nation to show you what the kingdom is like. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. They will have no idols before them. They would love me. They will worship me. They will walk with me. And, he, and, and we know the story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, then the 12, 12 tribes. And you guys know all those stories. They're amazing. Israel. Israel was there. But Israel... As Moses came down the mountain, you know, they made a golden calf. They had to worship something because in the human nature, you can never remain neutral. You think you're neutral, but you're not. You're just not. We were created to worship something, to give worth and adoration to something in our life. So we can justify it or build whatever our theology is around that, 
We were created as worshippers. So never could we not worship. The problem was who we were worshipping, the false, the false idols. So the, the direction was just downward, plummeting. Then God gave them a great king, David. He was the greatest king ever, apparently. You know, the same guy was on the wall at night and saw the naked girl, then forced himself upon her, then made her pregnant, then murdered her husband. You know, that good king? That good king, yeah. So everything was going downward, and that's what I'm trying to, to, to explain here. And, and then the, I learned this at Bible school. It's quite, quite cool, actually, in the 80s. When was it? 90s. Uh, right here, something happened. What do you think happened there? What do you think happened there? Can you see? Adela said forward a bit. That, that is the cross of Jesus. It's called the hermeneutic filter. So God, God from the beginning wanted the nations. Okay, Sin entered in. He chose Israel. Israel failed. His people. But his plan was always through, through the Jews. Always through Israel. If you read the Psalms, if you read Romans in particular, it speaks very clearly about that. And the entire book of Hebrews is really for the Hebrews. It's a very deep Hebraic letter to the Jews. But they failed. Israel failed. David failed as a king and everybody failed. And then Jesus came. To, uh, the, uh, word of, the, word, the Bible says that the Son of Man came to take away the sins of the world and to destroy the works of the enemy. So boom, right here. So then in Matthew chapter 10, there's, a, there's an odd scripture that says that when Jesus denied somebody something, he said, I've come first for the lost sheep of Israel. Do you remember reading that? The lost sheep of Israel. It always used to intrigue me, and it still does. I don't have a perfect scenario. But as we go into this last piece of, this, of what we're doing today, I think this is important to know, what is going to happen in this space right here. Let's read it. Verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman. The Canaanites were idol worshippers and they sacrificed their children and they led Israel astray for centuries to, 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 to serve foreign gods, false gods. The, the, the Canaanites and the Israel people were as far apart as you can ever imagine. Try and think of a great scenario. Like, um, what? Yes, yes. And Leafs and who are the other fans? Canadians, okay. So who is, who is the best hockey player on the Leafs team? Who? Austin Matthew. What? What's his name? Austin Matthew. Austin Matthew. Who's the best player on the Montreal team? Stop with Gary Price. So this, this would be like Gary Price coming to Austin Matthews. Kerry Price, whatever. The best guy on the Montreal team comes to the best guy on the Leafs team and says to him, Oh, God of hockey, I bow before you and I admonish you. This is literally what is almost happening here. Does that make sense? It's so out of context. It's so random. But it was prefaced perfectly by the previous chapter. And that's why I had to just tell you a little bit about the backdrop of what is going on here historically. Because Jesus did not come to abolish and destroy the law, to prove that he has... He's never came to prove. He had no authority on earth. Or he'd be the next Roman governor who says, everybody bow to me, and here I am. And he never came like that. All his authority was in heaven and founded its manifestation through our lives. The richness and the fullness of that was deposited not into a system, but into a people. And what happened here? Yeah, this was so concentrated historically at that particular moment. Because he was coming for the lost sheep of Israel and he wanted Israel to, 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 to catch up as he wants to this very day. 
those who resist the Messiah. And this particular moment is this, is this, this Canaanite woman comes to him and, and, and greets him like a king. This is by scholars called a kingly greeting. So it says, woman in the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David. That was a royal greeting. Have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And Jesus didn't answer a word. I don't know why. But maybe, uh, reading against some of the dudes, the Canaanite woman, okay, this, I, I'm going to paraphrase what I've read from, I um, um, can't remember his name now. Anyway, uh, he says that they were, they were very strong in their, in their, in their personality, and they would, they would not take no for an answer. And if they determined to get something and do something, they were going to do it. They were rough, coarse, coarse, and, and rough-spoken women, and they were persistent. Remember, this is an utterly debauched culture where probably where they sacrificed their children. It was the norm there to sacrifice their children. And they were completely apostate. And randomly, in the middle of this, there's a Canaanite woman who greets Jesus as the son of David, the kingly royal greeting, and said, please help me, my daughter is sick. And Jesus ignores her for some reason. Okay? So the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, please. She keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay. And then the woman came and knelt before him. She wouldn't take no for an answer. She said, Lord, you've got to help me. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. You think Jesus called her a dog? Nobody knows. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, a woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, I don't know why, because Jesus said to the Roman centurion, Lord, you don't have to come to my house, the Roman centurion said to him. I understand authority, just say the word. And Jesus said, in Israel, I've not seen faith like this. And at that very moment, the servant was healed. So it's, it's not like it was only for Israel. But the, the conclusion I, I can draw is that it, it's here, it's, it's here, it's in this thing. He's come for the lost sheep of Israel. He's looking for the lost sheep of Israel. And he's drawing that parallel. Now, I don't know if this is going to fit, but just take it for what it is because you're gracious towards me. We have a dog, Maui. Okay? Maui gets more love than we get as human beings. Hands down. Catherine kisses Maui, I don't know, maybe a thousand times more than me. And holds the dog and strokes the dog. The dog tears things up. But, oh, Maui, oh, Maui. <laughs> Maui does not respond to her name. You call Maui, except if Levi does it because she might go for a walk. But she doesn't come. Touch a packet of chips or a, anything. Open the fridge door. Open the, 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 the thing for the garbage bin. Or what, when I crack my eggs, just that crack, Maui jumps off the bed upstairs because she responds to the crumbs that fall from the table. I had a much, in my head it sounded much better than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know if Jesus uh, called this, this woman a dog. That, that's the question that most uh, guys who want to find fault with him want to say here. But, and why he ignored her initially, but her persistence uh, brought him to a place where he said, it's, it's, woman, you have great faith. 
your request is granted. That persistence. And so, so at times, you know, because he, he's, he's, now, he's now the lost sheep of Israel, Israel in here, Israel in here, Israel. And then, and then Peter and the, and the other apostles took this back to the nations, the Gentiles, everybody. And we know that the subsequent prison epistles, the books, everything was written again to the nations. So it starts in a city garden. Yeah, city garden. And it ends in a city garden. Some say it starts in a garden, ends in a garden. No, I like cities more. I like gardens, but it's a city garden. Do you know the most beautiful cities in the world are those who have gardens meshed in in between them? Like in Japan? That's what we're going back to in the end. All nations. With Jesus as the king. There's not just a nebulous kingdom in which we do what we want to do, like, like some of the, the guys in the, in the office saying, uh, the, the apprentice is saying, I, I want someone to lead me, but I want them to lead me like I want to be led. That is saying, I want this kingdom so much. I love this kingdom. Look how cool it is. Look how cool these people are. But I don't want the king. It's like saying, Yaku, you and Kath come for dinner. I like you so much, but I don't like your wife. And so we can't, we can't separate that at all, ever. He's the king. He's coming, he's coming to reinstate that glorious thing. And how is he going to do it? Through us, the servants. And I'm wrapping up. Jesus left there. He went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up the mountainside and he sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. Just like Mackie said here, it was the needy who became the followers of Jesus, those who were desperate for him, who had a cry, who had a need, the mute, and many others. And they laid him at his feet and he healed them. And the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking and the blind seeing. And after all that, they praised God, the God of Israel. And Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days. (coughs) They've had nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. And you will not believe the next line. The disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place, to feed such a crowd. Wow. Go like that. There it is. 5,000 men. The difference was between that crowd and this crowd, this crowd was Gentile. This crowd were Jews. They saw what Jesus was able to do. But in this crowd, like Jonah, when Jesus, when the Pharisees wanted to trick Jesus, and with a sign, he said, there's no sign. There's no sign. The only sign is Jonah, the prophet. The premise of Jonah was he knew how good God was and God would forgive Nineveh. And so he fled in the opposite direction because he did not want to see the goodness. He wanted the Ninevites to bleed and to pay. He wanted them destroyed. And the goodness of God overshadows that reality. And that is at the very depth of the heart of the Pharisee. Somebody's got to pay. And Jesus says here, the Gentiles are also people. This is the glory of the gospel. The restoration of all things to me. Not just the Jews, but through the Jews, because of the Jews, as Romans and Hebrews state, the nations of the earth. So in our, in our, in our pluralistic mentality in the world, in the secular world that we live in, it's got to be either one or the other. Jesus says, no, it's the whole picture. And you've got to start to see it. Got to start to see it, and he did exactly the same. They told the crowd to sit down, and then he took the seven loaves. This time they had much more bread, seven loaves, and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. 
They all ate and they were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls. First time, twelve. Second time, seven of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was 4,000 besides the women and the children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into a boat and he went to the vicinity of Magadan. Chapter 14 and 15. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can see this picture, this story. We love you. We love you. We want to be those who bring all we have to you, Jesus. All we have, we surrender our hearts, our lives to you, Lord Jesus. Knowing that there's so much more to experience in this life. Knowing that there's so much more to walk in and walk through and grow into. Knowing that you're faithful and true to a thousand generations. Knowing that when you say something, it comes to pass. And today, Lord, we pray right now, please agree with me, for all those that are sick among us. Lord, I've not read anywhere in the gospel, in all four, that you, that you, that you, that you didn't heal those who were around you. Lord, and I believe that. I do believe that the kingdom manifestation and its reality is healing among us. In Jesus' name. Healing of the mind. Healing of the heart. Healing of the body. In every way, I release that healing in the name of Jesus. Lord, I come to you with what I have. I take from you what I have. And I give by faith to those who need, Lord. And for all of us in the same way, Jesus. Deliver us from a from our, from our secular rock star mentalities, and may we realize that we are the disciples of Jesus, the priesthood of all believers. Truly, that the, the, the rich deposit, this jewel, this treasure, has been deposited into our lives, and that we would take responsibility and steward that, that Lord. In Jesus' name, thank you that you are our provider. Thank you that you are our, our Savior, our healer, our deliverer, our hope, our future. Amen. 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 God bless you.